Christians that have three different uh, kind of components. You've got Jesus, you've got his disciples, and you have uh, the Samaritan woman. And the story kind of weaves in and out as we read this. And in all of those situations, both the Samaritan woman and the disciples, Jesus is trying to go after their heart to do some training, to do some teaching, to do some modeling. And again, I, I want to challenge you as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, to always be asking yourself, what do you think Jesus is trying to teach his followers in, in this situation? What are the training things that Jesus is trying to teach them? What are the heart things that Jesus is trying to develop? When I, when I think of John chapter 4, it reminded me of... Uh, an experience that I had that's real similar to this. In the year 2000, uh, our denomination was uh, asking pastors if they'd be willing to do some travel overseas to help train pastors in some dis different countries. And uh, you know, it seemed like a lot of things happening in some countries and the folks weren't able to go off to seminary and needed biblical training. So they said, would you guys be willing to take some time and do it? And so I was approached, and I said, yes, I'd be happy to go, and uh, didn't ask an important question because they said, great, I'm glad you're willing to go. We'll give you Russia in January. And uh, that's not really the place I was thinking about going because I grew up in the Cold War era. Literally, when I was a kid, you know, the evil empire, Darth Vader, Russia, was going to attack the U.S. We thought that as school kids. We would literally have um, drills in our classroom where we'd crawl underneath our desk in the case of a nuclear bomb going off. And we were kind of taught that in school. It was crazy. I don't know what getting underneath the desk was going to do, but uh, we were being trained. And so I said, yes, I would go. Russia, January. The second thing that they kind of dropped on me, they said, well, great, your subject will be how to preach from the minor prophets. And uh, maybe you're not even familiar with them, but I don't even remember having a class in seminary on teaching or preaching from the minor prophets. So anyway, I learned or tried to learn some words. I learned three words. Uh, one was niet, which meant no. One was spasibo, which was thank you. And the other was dobre utro, which was good morning. And I'm a slow learner. And that's the only three words I got. And uh, got on the airplane, flew overseas, got off the plane in Moscow. I tend to be an adventurous kind of guy. And so I was pretty excited until I got off the plane and realized, again, this is the year 2000. There's no English anywhere in the airport, only Russian signs and guys with machine guns. This was before 9-11. And so, you know, it was kind of a, a shock. Luckily, I found my ride. I spent a couple of days in a little debrief in Moscow, got on a train, traveled eight hours to this town of a little over a million people to do some teaching for a couple weeks. And when I got there, met my students, I was just really impressed by um, these folks that had traveled several days to leave their town, some of them only a believer a year or two, and pastoring a couple churches. I mean, the gospel was taking off in Russia at that time. And so I had an interpreter as I taught classes, and I had one of my students say, hey, about the second week, will you go with me to a ministry I have here in town? He didn't say it. The interpreter said it. And I said, sure. And he said, the interpreter will meet us there. Come with me tomorrow night or whatever it was, and we'll go. So I'm not making this up. The next night... I meet him in the lobby of uh, the building we were in, and we walked through a chain-link fence that had been cut, kind of crawled through, and uh, down these dark alleys through snow and mud, we get on a bus, then we get on a little train uh, subway thing, and then back on a bus, and I mean, I'm, I don't know anybody, and this guy can't even really communicate that well. He knew more than three words. I will give him credit. Get off the train or the bus, and go down some more dark alleys. We go through uh, uh, another area that had a wood fence with a couple boards pulled off that you could slide through. And uh, this is the evil empire, remember? Uh, Russia. These were the bad guys. 
into the back door of this building that was very poorly lit, up dark stairs that maybe had one light bulb every three or four, down a long hall where he walked me into a room that was filled with uh, elderly Russian ladies. His, his ministry while he was in this town was to show love to these Russian women. And so I started to think as I'm there, you know, I thought I was here to do the teaching, but I'm starting to realize that, you know, God's probably got some big lessons for me. I had the opportunity to preach the gospel that night. Two elderly ladies gave their life to Christ. One's name was Faina. I'll never forget her. She was a, a, a World War II refugee that had just been swept across Russia and dumped in this place with no family, nothing, no hope except for Christ that she found that night. When I read John chapter 4 and and look at the trip that Jesus is going to take his disciples on, it's really the same kind of thing. He's going to take them to a place they didn't want to go and be with people they did not want to be with for the expressed intent purpose to show them that the gospels for all people at all places and all times and there's heart issues in his disciples that need addressed so that's a little bit of the context of where we're going this evening again you think about jesus he has three and a half years to train his disciples so that they would carry on the mission that he had been involved in until he leaves and so he intentionally trains them to love like he loved, to live like he lived, and to serve the same way that he served. And how did he do it? Well, he did it by spending time on the move. He would spend time walking from Judea north to Galilee and spend time with Gentiles and not Jewish people. And that would raise a ruckus with the Jewish leaders. As a matter of fact, when you begin to think about the people that Jesus would expose his followers to. There were people like lepers that were the shunned of society. They were prostitutes. They were demon-possessed people. They were thieves, fishermen, shepherds, religious leaders. Many were misfits, throwaways of society. But it was always to teach them to look at their heart and to develop and cultivate a heart that was just like Jesus. See, to be a disciple who is devoted to Jesus is going to mean we have to create and develop a passion and a priority for the things Jesus had. And if you're taking notes, those would be two important words to write down. As a disciple, Jesus wants us to have a passion and a priority for the same things that he has. Now, I'm not making this up. Here's a couple Bible verses where he says just that. Listen to John chapter 4, or 14, verse 12. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I do, he will do also. That's one of those verses I have highlighted in my Bible as a reminder. Truly, truly, the one who believes in me, the works I do, he does also. It's this this expectation that if we're a follower of Christ, we're going to do the things he did. A second uh, passage would be John 17, verse 18. As he prays this high priestly prayer to the Father, he says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. In other words, Jesus is sending us out to do the very same thing that he did and have the same passions and same priorities. One more example is 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him, meaning Jesus, ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. So you see the pattern. We're to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus. And so when you read the Gospels and watch Jesus training his disciples, He's always training him in these kinds of things. Jesus was teaching them also the priority and the power of the gospel as he travels with them. This gospel is the gospel that saved them, but it's also the gospel that is supposed to shape them and then send them. 
a gospel that not only saves, but shapes and sends. Real quickly, there's five things, as we'll read the passage in a moment, that uh, appear in John chapter 4 that, uh, if you notice in other gospel accounts, uh, one or more of these also show up. So when you read the Gospels, think about these five things and see if they show up, one or more. First is, Jesus was always training his disciples what it meant to live purposefully. What's it mean to live purposefully? Second would be how to uh, love sacrificially. What's it mean to love sacrificially? And so he put them in places where he would model to them what sacrificial love looks like. Third, he would teach them how to think biblically. Or I might add the word gospelly. And so that's a word I just made up. And I can write a book and say gospelly living or something like that, right? Christians do that stuff. You ever notice they put an L-Y on things and now they create a new word and they can write a book. So how to live purposefully, how to love sacrificially, how to think biblically, how to give generously is the fourth one. And the last one is how to walk faithfully. This account in John chapter 4 happens to have all four of these, or all five of these components in them. Not all stories do, but this one does. So I want us to look closely at this disciple-making training that Jesus is bringing his followers into, and notice how these five different things show up. If you're not there yet, now's the good time to be in John chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, let's read. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of, uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this well, or from this water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right, saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am him, and he. Just some disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you, or, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I'm going to stop there. We'll dive into the rest of the verses in just a moment. But within this first section, I see some of these points that Jesus was training his disciples in uh, being taught here. First is this, how to live purposefully. The reason I say it's a training mission, it's found in the first couple of verses of chapter 4. Jesus is in Judea. If you think of a map or turn the back of your Bible, Jesus is in the south, the region called Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. And he's going to head north. It's interesting that the text says that uh, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And so he's got the religious leader's attention and as a result of that, they're going to leave the area. And they're going to go to Galilee, which is in the north. See, we've got Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and a stretch of land in between called Samaria. The text says he had to go through Samaria. But that makes no sense if you understand the cultural background of that time. Here's what I mean. The Samaritans were a despised, disliked group of people. The Jewish people considered them half-breeds. Back when the Babylonian captivity happened, it, it was the Samaritan people that would intermarry with their captors. It's the Samaritan people that really uh, did not hold to the true teaching of the Jewish faith. Matter of fact, they were so disliked and so looked down on as if you were going to travel from Galilee to Judea, the opposite direction south, and you went through Samaria and, and encountered a Samaritan and then wanted to go to the temple, you had to go through ceremonial cleansing because you were defiled because you interacted with a Samaritan. I mean, this is how much these people, I mean, they were the uh, evil empire, if you will, of the day. Stay away from Samaria. And so on this trip from Judea to Galilee, it's about 75 miles direct route. I remember they were walking. But here's what Jewish folks did to avoid the Samaritans. They came close to the border of Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River, do a bypass all the way around Samaria, and then come back into uh, Galilee after they passed Samaria. Their walking trip of 125, or of 75 miles now is a walking trip of 125 miles. How much do you dislike somebody to do that? How much do you hate a group of people that you're willing to go that far out of your way? Well, they did, obviously. They looked down on the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. They were exclusionary. See, what had happened is the Jewish people, disciples included, that's why they were kind of shocked that they were even there had assigned a value to the Samaritan people that was less than what God had assigned. Stick with me for a minute. They considered them less thans. They had placed a value on Samaritans that was less than the value God had assigned them. And so Jesus is going to march right on into Samaria and say, the gospel is for all people. Your sin is no better than the sin of the Samaritan people. Jesus was getting at the heart of his disciples. And they had this bypass mentality that they were used to living with, bypassing 
Samaria. See, there were cultural barriers, societal barriers, there were geographic barriers, and there were religious barriers that kept the two people apart. And Jesus was going to go after their heart and force them to address the way they looked at the Samaritans and force them to understand the gospel is for all people. See, the problem was that they had a heart problem. They assigned this value to them based on their evaluation, not God's. The gospel had to be retaught, if you will, and continued to be taught to the disciples so they would get it right. Because when Jesus was gone, no one was to be left out. Now you might say, well, you know, that's, that's okay, but, you know, bypass mentalities, I'm not sure I've got one. Let me tell you about a bypass mentality that I had this past week. Kim and I, my wife and I, were in Austin, Texas at our national conference for the week. Our hotel was about 15 minutes from uh, the church that was holding the conference. So we get in our car in the morning, and every day going to and coming back, we would have multiple stop signs and streets where homeless people were. And they would come to your car asking for money. And so after about the first day, I developed the bypass mentality. Man, I don't have time for these people to come knock on my door. And if I start giving them money, they're just going to buy alcohol or drugs or something like that. And I started to rationalize and see these people as less thans. I started thinking, wonder if there's another route so I don't even have to encounter them. I did that for a whole week until the end of the week, Kim and I are talking and we're both feeling guilty and kind of repenting to each other and God and it dawns on us, you know, if I, if I was going to live purposefully in life like Jesus, I should have went to the store and bought a a, a case of water bottles. It was like 100 degrees there. I, I could have went to the store and bought snacks and handed out food, right? I didn't have to get them money, but I didn't do it. I was getting a bypass mentality. I'd placed a value on them different than what God had. And so we got to be careful in our own life because it's easy to develop a bypass mentality. So Jesus is stressing that his gospel is for all people in all places at all times. Nobody is to be excluded. Nobody is to be left out. And then we come to this woman that he encounters. And she was shocked based on her response. Jesus, modeling for his disciples, here's what it means to live purposefully, marches right into Samaria, right to the well, right in a public place and ask this lady for water. And you can see her shock by her response. How is it you're asking me for a drink of water? You're, you're Jewish, I'm Samaritan, and I'm a, and I'm a woman. You know, Jesus did that a lot, didn't he? You remember the lepers that were untouchable that had to go through the clouds or the crowds crying out, unclean, unclean, stay away. Who is it that Jesus would touch? How about the tax collectors? How about the others of the time that Jesus intentionally, intentionally and purposefully interact with? Life for us is to be like Jesus. No one left out. No one left out. And so our passions and our priorities must reflect that as Jesus when we think about living for the gospel. Listen to Colossians 3. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do in word or, do, or deed, do everything, not some things, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This gospel that saves us must shape us, change our hearts not only for salvation, but for service to him. Second thing that, that shows up in these passages is what it means to love sacrificially. Jesus marches into Samaria and he begins to show love not only to the Samaritan woman, but we're going to see in a minute, to the whole town. 
If you're going to live purposefully in life Jesus, for Jesus, it's going to require you to love sacrificially. Here's what I mean. You remember the religious interact or the interaction with the religious leader in the Gospels where they try to trick Jesus and say, so what's the very most important thing we must do in life? And he says, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, the second thing is to watch. You remember? Love your, make sure you're awake. Love your neighbor as yourself. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, literally, who is their neighbor? Samaritans. Love your neighbor as yourself. It would be virtually impossible for us if we say we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to not love everyone as God loves them and think that some should be excluded. Their sin is so horrendous that they could be not loved by God. Not only are they in Samaria, but Jesus breaks some more religious traditions that begin to display what it means to love sacrificially. The details of this story in John chapter 4 shows that this woman is at the well on the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock noon. She's a lady that had been married five times and now living with someone. Most people gather water in early morning, late night. You know why she's there at noon? So she doesn't have to encounter the other ladies in town that would harass her. It was the other thing that would be common in that day is no uh, Jewish man, especially a rabbi, would be seen with a woman in public with just the two of them. Greatly looked down upon. So Jesus is breaking some more of these religious rules and shows up and meets with this lady who has a really not-so-good reputation. And so when the disciples come back, they're shocked to find Jesus talking with her. Can you imagine their shock? Can you imagine what it would have been like, number one, when they first marched right into Samaria to think, oh, what are we doing? Does he not know where we're going? Maybe we need to give Jesus some directions. Oh, no, we're right in Samaria. Now he's talking with the Jewish. Does Jesus not know the black mark this puts on his ministry? I mean, we just left Judea because the religious leaders are getting up in arms. And now we're going to be known for people that go to Samaria and interact with Samarian people. You see, there were big ramifications of Jesus marching them into town because they're less than. But remember this, folks. There are no less thans in God's kingdom. There are no less thans in God's kingdom. There are those that are not part of God's kingdom, but there are no less thans. So Jesus marches them right into Samaria so that their heart would be confronted. Loving sacrificially requires us to place the same value on people that God does, to see them the same way of value as God does. But too often that's not the case because some people are not like us. Now you're thinking, well... I don't know of any Samaritans in my life that I would look that way on, but maybe I can suggest a few for you. Hold on, because I might step on your toes a bit. For some people, less thans are rich people. For some, they're poor people. For some, they're people that live on the inner city. For some, they're rural people. For some, they're working moms. For some, they're stay-at-home moms. For some, they're the employed. For some, they're the unemployed. For some, they're white people. For some, they're black people. For some, they're Hispanics. For some, they're Asians. People that we look down on. For some, they're blue collar. For some, they're white collar. For some, they're Mormons. For some, they're Catholics. For some, they're Muslims. For some, they're Hindu. 
For some, they're professionals. For some, they're uneducated people. For some, they're couples living together. For some, they're people that are divorced. For some, they're adulterers. For some, they're tattooed. For some, they're homosexuals. For some, they're transgenders. For some, they're welfare recipients. For some, they're those who are in prison because of crime. They're the less thans. For some, they're alcoholics. For some, they're drug addicts. For some, they're Democrats, and for some, they're Republicans. I covered the list, right? Think for a minute. Isn't it easy to have one of those possibly get into a category for you where you place a value on them that's different than God's? Now, I'm not saying we ever overlook sin. God never overlooked our sin. But we can't place a value on somebody as a less than. You can't say you love God and not extend God's love to those that God wants to redeem. Loving God requires you to love what God loves. It will require you and I to love those who may not be naturally people we connect with very well. And I have my group as well. Jesus had to go through Samaria to break the less than's mindset of his disciples. Here's the thing that really happens in our heart when we allow ourselves to place a value on somebody that's different than God's. We begin to minimize our sin and maximize their sin, right? We begin to say, well, their sin is so horrific God could never forgive that. But, you know, my sin, I told a few little lies in my life. No. If we make somebody a less than, we minimize our sin and maximize theirs. And when we do that, we forget about the mercy and the grace and the love of God that reached down and saved us. Sinners, separated from God who is holy and righteous and just. And for that, we all ought to say amen. Third thing, Jesus was teaching them to think biblically, not only his disciples, but there's this great interaction with this Samaritan woman. He was going to confront her with her faulty thinking. And so in verses 7 through 26, we have this interaction with this Samaritan woman, with Jesus. And might I summarize some of the things uh, that were happening like this. This Samaritan woman was blinded by her religious belief system and had pretty much settled everything into place by saying, I have a place that I worship and I have a way of worshiping, and I'm counting on that one day. And so when Jesus comes in a Jew, those two Worlds collide, if you will. The Samaritans consider their place of worship, Mount Gerizim, uh, above uh, Shechem, where there was a temple where they would worship at. She was basically saying, I have my own way of believing, my own likes in how I do worship, and the way I choose to do it is my choice. I'm counting on my religious system. It'd be like you or I being asked, what are you counting on for eternal life? And saying, well, you know, I'm a Methodist, or I'm a brethren, or I'm a this or that. The truth is, the Jewish people had the same issue, right? They, they were counting on their place and their style to save them, and Jesus is not going to let this happen. So in verse 10, Jesus gets right down to it with her. He says, if you know, if you knew the person who was talking from you, if you knew who that was, you would take this more seriously. He uses the wording, if you knew the gift of God. Jesus is speaking directly to her about the grace of God in offering salvation 
for people that are separated. If you knew the gift of God, and then he ties in the well where they're sitting and begins to talk about living water. Now, this was a well that had an ample water supply, but it wasn't a well that had free-flowing water. So when we read this, there's a connection that, that we need to understand. <clears throat> in those days, for a person to be ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed, I'll get it out, uh, for a person to be ceremonially cleansed, they needed spring water, fresh water that flowed. That was the only kind of water that could purify you from your sins. And Jesus uses this well saying, I'm the gift of God, and I'm the only one who can purify you from your sins. Verses 11 through 13, the, the confrontation goes a little further, where Jesus goes back at her on her religious beliefs and addresses her with the gospel. The, the discussion that Jesus goes into goes to everyone's deepest need. He says, the water that I would give you is a water that is secured and promised and is going to cleanse you. And it's interesting as her response says, give me some of this water so I don't have to come here every day and get water. She still doesn't quite get it, but in her saying that, I can only imagine that her shame of having five husbands and living with someone now, her shame was so great that being approached by other ladies in that community was pretty tough. And Jesus says, look, I've got living water that's good forever. Verses 14 through 26, again, Jesus is back into this tradition belief that she has about the place of worship. And so Jesus comes right down to it and confronts her in her sin, calls her out, if you will. And she escapes just a little bit and says, well, I know, I know there's a Messiah coming one day. And he says, I am he. And now she's faced with what she's going to do with Jesus. You know, the Bible's full of examples like this. Jesus hadn't formally called the 12 to himself yet. This is early in Jesus' ministry. We know at least four were with him, but we don't know how many else. But John chapter 3 fits in before four where he has an encounter with Nicodemus, a religious leader. And in essence, it's, what are you going to do with me, Nicodemus? Jesus is saying, you remember Peter at one point? Hey, Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus offers her an understanding that he is the promised Messiah that can take away and forgive her sin. Well, the cool thing about this story is that uh, she believes it. She believes it because the story goes on to say that she leaves her water jar, goes back into town, and tells her town. Kind of funny. She didn't get any Bible college training or didn't get any seminary degree or anything like that. She just kind of believes that Jesus is the Messiah and goes back into town. living purposefully, she had already picked up. Thinking biblically allows us to see the power of the gospel, that this woman who is now on fire and believes that Jesus is the Messiah wants to tell other people. And the disciples need reminded of what just happened. Again, remember the lens they would have seen this situation in. Samaritans, oh no, they're bad people. Whenever you see the gospel presented or, or somebody come to faith in Christ, it should be a time where we remember the depth of our own sin, the, the mercy that God extended to us, the, the grace that was given to us that we didn't deserve, and the literal movement from death to life in Christ. And the disciples needed to be reminded of that and be reminded that their sin was no less than the Samaritan woman's sin. Their sin separated them from God just 
like hers did. Fourth thing that we see in this story is giving generously. Let me finish the story for you. Verse 35, chapter 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed uh, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Giving generously. Our minds probably naturally go to writing a check or giving financially for giving generously. Uh, Our culture, that's probably the easiest thing to do. It's probably a more expensive check to write for your time, right? He stays two more days and teaches the disciples as they're kind of saying, I think as I read this text, hey, let's hurry up and eat and get out of town. No, we're going to stay. We're going to give of ourselves generously to these people. And so it means staying in Samaria longer and forgetting about the cost of their reputation and their time. Giving generously, man, opening up their life to those they wanted nothing to do with. It was an inconvenience. And it was costly. Giving generously meant giving themselves fully to the mission of God and staying two more days. Giving generously is not only our finances, because it comes from our heart. Understanding that everything we have and all we are is to be given generously back to God because God gave generously to us his son for our salvation. The last piece I want us to notice is walking faithfully. Walking faithfully. The woman leaves her water jar, goes back in the town, as we've already talked about, shares this good news, and the town comes out. And Jesus now begins to help them understand what it really means to walk faithfully as a follower follower of Christ. An important piece of this story is found in verse 35. Verse 35 says, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They're white for harvest. Go back just a few verses to verse 30 and notice this. The lady goes back into town, and verse 30 says, they went out of town and were coming to him. I think what Jesus was saying when he said, lift up your eyes and look, he's saying, look, the whole town is coming out to where we are. You're worried about eating and getting out of town, and you don't even see what's taking place in the world around you you got to have eyes to see if you're going to live and walk faithfully. Jesus makes it even easier to some degree because now he's going to say and give the example. It's like 
sowing and reaping. And I grew up on a farm, so I'm acquainted with these terms, as most of you probably are. He says, look, there's going to be two things that take place if you're going to walk faithfully. You're going to spend probably the majority of your life sowing seeds for the gospel in your world by developing relationships with people and uh, loving them like God loves them and pointing them to Christ. And then every once in a while, you get a chance to lead someone to Christ. And, And Jesus is saying, look, I sent you to reap, I sent you to do the work of the gospel, but what's happening here in this town isn't a result of this very moment. It took place long ago by the sowing of the word, by the prophets and by other people. Walking faithfully means we live with the priority of the gospel in our life. And we are to develop eyes that are able to see the opportunities. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your family. All of life, walking faithfully, means we're either in the sowing or the reaping phase. And most often it's been my experience that I'm in the sowing phase. And verse 31 says that when that's our life aim is that's what we do in following Christ, that there's a joy that comes about. Walking faithfully brings about joy because our priorities and our passions match that of Jesus's. Walking faithfully, following Christ. Isn't this a crazy story? I mean, the most least likely person to be instrumental in seeing a people that were despised and hated by God, uh, by Jewish people is a person in the town with probably the lowest standing. And this whole town comes and many, many believe in Christ. So what's this have to do with us? You're a part of substance. How does this apply to our life? This thought of living purposefully, loving sacrificially, giving generously, walking faithfully, thinking biblically. What's this got to do with us? Well, there's going to be some ways that that this can get lived out and must get lived out for us. You know, this fall, we're going to need to make some changes. We're going to talk about moving to a morning service in Worcester. We're going to talk about changing the time in Ashland for the Sunday morning worship service. And there's two ways you're going to approach this. It's either going to be, yes, there's an opportunity to live purposefully for Christ. Yes, I'll walk faithfully. I'll, I'll love sacrificially. This presents an opportunity or it'll be, yuck. God's going to want to work on our heart, amen? Because we're going to be gravitating to what we want. This fall, we need to multiply community groups. Guess what that means? You get to get to know other people. You get to sacrificially love other people that you don't know now. You get to purposefully live and invest in other people. Remember, Jesus was teaching his disciples to do these things. We have this tendency, if we're not careful, to be just like the Samaritan woman. I kind of like my church my way. Jesus would break down those thoughts. What's God want to change in your heart? How are your passions and your priorities? Would you say they stack up pretty close to Jesus? Is there a passion that's off? Or are there some priorities that you need to repent of? You see, to work on your biblical thinking, your sacrificial love, giving generously of yourself, walking faithfully, Let me push just a little more. 
Did God uncover some less than thoughts and people in your life tonight? Did God surface some people that you've placed a value on that would be less than his? Do you live maybe with some bypass ways in your life? I don't know what they are for you. I know that uh, God continues to surface those with me. This uh, walking in faith, being a disciple of Jesus, having his passions and priorities is a lifelong pursuit. Amen? But it will always require me to look at my heart. The very thing that Jesus was addressing in the Samaritan woman and in his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us this story, this very clear and concise story that shows us that as a follower of yours, there are things that you want us to do and be. Might you use your word tonight to convict us in those areas that you've pointed out. Might you give us the humility to repent to you in the things that you have revealed to us. Help us to learn to live with the passions and the priorities of you, Jesus, so that we live seeing the gospel as a great potential in our world for many to move from death to life, for homes to be changed, relationships to be changed, so that you get the glory, you get the attention that you deserve. Lord, we can't change any hearts, only you can. So help us to be the kind of people that desire to be like you, O oh Christ, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.